Hello, friends, family. It is the weekend of Sunday, July the 18th. We continue looking at the book of Hebrews, and we actually are going to pick up where, right where we left off last week in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, and just for a, a brief review, I'm going to, going to read uh, verses 19 through 25, which is what we read last week. Um, sort of summarize what we talked about and then pick right back up. So, so hearing God's word to us found in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19, reading from the NIV, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the, this curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. So looking carefully at that passage, we noted that twice there's the phrase we have. And then following those, the, the, the we have, there's repeated three times the phrase let us. And we said that we have is provision and let us is then our privilege. Well, what do we have? We have confidence, he says. We have the boldness to enter into the sanctuary. And then secondly, we have a great priest over the house of God. And there, there's our complete provision. It's this awakened spirit and a complete mediator. Now, on the basis, and, and that basis alone, the writer of Hebrews goes on to urge three things that we can do. And these are the let us statements. And, and they are to draw near, to speak out, and to stir up. So the first is draw near with a true heart. The second step to which we are urged is to let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. And then thirdly, the third privilege is, well, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. So we have the privilege of all three of these, draw near, speak up, speak out, excuse me, and to stir up. That is the whole of the Christian life in a nutshell. This, is, this, is, this privilege is open to everyone if we come on the correct basis on the terms of Jesus Christ. Now, the only reason they escape us, the only reason that we don't do this or we don't have this is because we have not come by the way outlined at the beginning of this passage. And, and we have to be careful. We, we can't take this lightly because in this next section of chapter 10, the writer flashes this huge red light warning sign. And they go on to speak of a presumption which invites punishment. So, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength, our redeemer. Amen. So here we go. We're going to jump into Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 again in the NIV. Now, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment 
and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What a somber passage. Thanks a lot, right? <laughs> what is this willful, deliberate sin that has such terrible results? The tense of the word indicates immediately that it, it is not a single act of falling or of weakness. This is not something that we can stumble into suddenly. It's not the formal or the normal failings of a believer, of a follower in Christ, who is still learning, as we all are, how to walk in this identification of what we are in the Spirit. The continuous present tense of this word, excuse me, sin deliberately, marks a very long, continued attitude of resistance. It is, of course, the sin the writer has warned against all along in the book of Hebrews. It is the sin of knowing the principle of dying to self and following Christ and a consistent refusal to do so. I ran across a provocative phrase in looking at this passage that um, from a commentator that expresses this. It is the leukemia of non-commitment. It is refusing to stop from our own works and enter into God's rest. It is refusing the cross in our life. It is choosing to live for ourselves behind a Christian facade, refusing the claims of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is not possible when this new arrangement for living is not yet clearly understood. I want that to be clear. This willful sin is never the sin of ignorance. It is a presumptuous choice of self-living when we know perfectly well from the Word of God, the Scriptures, what the results of that choice will be. And what the writer is saying here is that once that choice has been fully made, and by grace of and by the grace of God, this can take years, years. But once it has been fully made, God hands us over to our desires, and there's not a way back. It is exactly the same situation faced in Hebrews chapter six, which we've already looked at. And the writer argues from the less to the greater here, from the picture to the reality. If this were true, even under the shadows of the law, if when a person violated even these pictures of Jesus and his work, they suffer death at the mouth of two or three witnesses, how much more shall they be culpable if they violate knowingly and deliberately the reality that is Jesus Christ? This kind of sin, the writer goes on to point out, always involves three things. First of all, there is a spurning of the Son of God. The writer of Hebrews deliberately chooses a title for Jesus, which emphasizes his right to be Lord over life, the Son of God. There's a consistent spurning of that, 
a refusal to buckle under, to acknowledge Christ's right to govern our life. Secondly, there is a profaning of the blood of Jesus. That means a rejection of the principle referred to earlier, a refusal of the sentence of death that God has pronounced on the natural life. It is presuming to approve what God condemns. It is to insist that our efforts to serve God ought to be accepted by him, even though he has said that they are not acceptable. It is to insist that our religious activities ought to be enough. When, when God has said that these things have all been set aside in the death of Jesus, that is profaning the blood by which, by the way, we are sanctified. We are given to our proper use. The third thing then, and, and the most serious of all, is the outraging of the spirit of grace. <clears throat> this is to treat with indifference. And by the way, indifference is always the cruelest form of hate. The pleadings, the wooings, the leadings of the Holy Spirit of God. It is to insult the Holy Spirit. This then is the dread blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, by which Jesus said there is no forgiveness, neither in this age nor in the world to come. Because of this passage, it is often asked, can Christians commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Is it possible? Well, the, the, the answer is both yes and no. <laughs> Christians who have declared that come hell or high water, sink or swim, live or die, their only hope is the promise of Jesus, who, who when they find themselves sinning and falling, own it up and, and, and repent and return to Jesus and trust him again. That kind of believer can never commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They are born of God <clears throat> and cannot do this. But believers who sin and do nothing about it, who resent the lordship of Jesus, who resist his authority and do as they please, regardless of what the word of God says, well, that kind of believer is in grave danger of this very thing. That is why the letter was written to, to the begin with. Such believers prove themselves to be embryo Christians. Remember, we talked about that as we saw in, in Hebrews Six, when we talked about the milk drinkers, the meat eaters, and the stillborn, never born of God, stillbirth, if you will. They have entered into that, perhaps that initial relationship of the Christian life by the Holy Spirit, but they never pass on to that taking of the yoke of Jesus on them, that new birth, that kind, that, that, that kind can drift into this. It is possible to drift into this. And to put ourselves into the hands of the living Jesus is to trust him, to obey him, to believe that he is the truth. And we mean then to follow him and do what he says. That is an amazingly glorious thing. Such freedom in that. It's one thing to put ourselves into the hands of the living Jesus. But as the scripture says, but to fall into the hands of the living God when we have professed one thing, but have consistently and deliberately refused to obey it. That's quite another thing. The writer of Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Because remember, for those that are in Christ, when God looks on us, all he sees is Jesus. But if we are not in Christ, if we refuse repeatedly, repeatedly, 
to come to Jesus on Jesus's terms. When a holy God looks on us, he sees us and we are then in his hands. We greatly need these words of warning. There is an incorrect superficial concept of God in our culture that I am of the opinion is doing a lot of damage to many. It's this idea of sort of a golly gee willikers God who, who slaps us on the back and says, you know, Hey, everything's fine. Don't worry about a thing. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. You're all right. I'm all, everybody's all right. I'm with you to the end. No matter what you do. God has never revealed himself in scripture like that. His self-revelation is continually other than this. The God whom we worship can be, can be to us the very dearest and closest person in the universe. He offers to be closer and more wonderful than anything that we can find possible on earth, but only on the terms which, in his wisdom and grace, he has seen are absolutely necessary to make that relationship a permanent one. We come to a holy God on his terms, not ours. There is not one of us who would dare defy the laws of chance by just endlessly playing Russian Russian roulette. We would know that sooner or later, the laws of chance are going to catch up, we'd be gone. And if we were killed doing that, it would be nothing but our own fault. Well, then, shall we defy the living God and think that we can escape? This is what the author of Hebrews asks. I, I, and I know the question that's on our heart because it, it, it is. It's, it's right there, right? It's a scary question. One that we kind of say with fear and trembling. Well, how can I know whether I'm one of these? And the answer is in this last section. There's this described this fortitude which reveals faith. And in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, the NIV says this, Remember those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were, who were so treated. And you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You, you, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And by righteous, by my right, and but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. In these words, the author of Hebrews recognizes that most of these that they are writing to have already given proof of true faith and of genuine birth. Their early Christian years were marked by love, by joy, hope, despite all kinds of hardships, unimaginable persecution. 
They had followed Jesus at cost to themselves. They had submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus, even when their own will would have been different. That is the mark of reality. That is the proof of faith. They cheerfully and compassionately accepted the persecutions, the deprivations, the hardships. They took Jesus's yoke on them, obeyed his lordship, and manifested it by love and by good works. They were living by faith. And we can do these things only when we live by faith, when we have accepted God's word and recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. That is that the history of the world is going to turn out as he says it is and that the values of life are what he says they are. Then and only then can we do this kind of thing. Now, they need to do only one more thing, the writer of Hebrews says, to them and to us. Keep on. Keep going. That's all. They're doing the right thing. Just keep on doing it. Does our way sometimes seem hard and difficult? Is it perhaps often lonely and exposed? Well, don't despair. Don't give up. That pattern has been predicted. That is part of Christian living today as it has always been. It's interesting to me, it's interesting to me how little we really want to suffer as Christians in the West, and particularly in America. Just the smallest little bit, we somehow are, are teetering on and, and starting to believe a little bit of untruth that, that, um, that we're just supposed to be prosperous and fine and in great health all the time for the believer. Where is that scriptural? Where does Jesus say that we're guaranteed some life without suffering? Where? Where does Jesus not come full forward at his invitation to leave mother and father behind, deny yourself and pick up your cross and come and follow me? But if we keep going in that, if we accept that as God's word, if, if we continue, if we live by faith, if we do not give up, if we do not despair, Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That is the great sentence that burned in the heart of Martin Luther, that lit, lit the fires of the Reformation. The just shall live by faith, not by circumstances, not by outward appearances, but by faith in what the word of God has declared. We need only to continue to reach the goal, to endure. It, it could well be translated in modern language by the word toughness. And in chapter 11, we will see some illustrations of, of men and women who have lived by faith. These are the tough people of history. They have endured. They have toughed it out. They have stuck it out. They faced all pressures, all the problems, all the confusing duplicity of life. But because they had their eye fixed on the one who never changes, they were tough. Nothing could move them aside or divert them. Now, that is what the apostle is calling for, that inner toughness 
which meets life steadfastly, unmovably, unshakably. It's never driven off its position of faith. It constantly meets every encounter, every challenge by resting on the word of God, relying on what God has said would take place. So God give us the toughness in these terrible and glorious days in which we live. Amen. And God bless.